how do we reason together about things that most matter? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, October 26th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a conversation with political philosopher Michael Sandel. Augustana University brings him to the state for a colloquium on citizenship and critical inquiry. I'll talk with Sandel about winning and losing in America, reconsidering the dignity of labor, and the tensions in our conversations about freedom. Cultural historian Joseph Horowitz returns to the studio alongside Delta David Geyer. We'll talk about both globalization and anchoring in what is local and traditional and immediate. That's ahead of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra's upcoming performance. And then our friend Kevin Wooster is with us later in the hour to talk about the pheasant season. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Well, people facing financial insecurity are at a disadvantage in the courtroom, especially in civil cases and especially in rural areas where lawyers may be few and far between. East River Legal Services seeks to address those challenges for clients. Their executive director, Lee Robleski, is with me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio now to dive into the complexities of rural legal aid and also to preview a movie night that yes. supports those efforts. Lee, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about the reach of East River Legal. Sure. We serve the eastern side of South Dakota, trying to help low-income South Dakotans with civil legal needs, individuals who don't have the right to an attorney in a family law, a housing consumer case, or a case concerning their public benefits. Um, actually, over 90% of low-income individuals with a civil legal issue are unable to find an attorney to help them, and we try and fill in and provide services to that population. In navigating... Oh, a child custody case would be a nightmare without legal representation to help you. How do people connect with you? Do they just give you a call and you pair them with somebody? How does the connectivity work? Sure. The best way to get assistance is to apply online at sdlawhelp.org. We share that website with the other two general civil legal aid providers in the state of South Dakota. So you don't need to figure out what program to apply with. You just apply at sdlawhelp.org. Um, that application is then routed to our program and an intake specialist calls back within one to two days. Who are your lawyers? Who's doing this work? We have, unfortunately, not enough lawyers. And yeah. um, we have five attorneys right now providing direct service to clients. They also oversee the advice and information that's given to the applicants that we're not able to provide an attorney. So we at least are able to help people try and navigate the court system on their own or at least understand the issues that are involved. Yeah. So give us an idea of you're having a movie night that is sort of bringing attention Two issues in South Dakota, issues that deal with civil law. You picked the Florida Project over a screening at the State Theater. We were just talking off mic about how much both of us love this movie um, with Willem Dafoe in it and an unknown, previously unknown actress who really makes an incredible, memorable performance in this as well. Tell me a little bit about the event. Sure. It's actually a staff favorite. We were, yeah. we're really excited to share this movie um, with the community. We find that the themes of the movie really resonate even in South Dakota. So far away from the extended stay hotels that are in the movie, we have 
families in the same situation here in South Dakota. Um, so the event is obviously in Sioux Falls at the State Theater. It's at 7 o'clock. It's going to be followed by a short discussion. We have some questions to provide to attendees, and we have invited some community partners to comment on their response to the movie as well. Yeah, that's on November 14th, and we'll put links up on our website so you can find more um, you're traveling across the state and you're listening to some of the challenges, obstacles, and also success stories of uh, rural legal aid. Tell me a little bit about what you're hearing and some of the potential for community and connection among the legal community to, to make this kind of work happen. Sure. I just got back from Aberdeen and I was in Huron last week and pretty similar experiences in that we have very welcoming communities with lots of opportunities for residents. Um, civil legal aid is identified as a need with our community partners in both of those towns. Um, so we're finding ways to collaborate and improve outcomes for, for low-income clients in those communities. But just like in Sioux Falls, they have issues with debt collection, issues with landlords, issues with the parents of their children that they're no longer uh, involved with. And so we try and, and fill in with those services and find ways to collaborate in those communities to extend services. Let's wrap with a, a, your message to law students, young high school students or early um, students at, at USD School of Law, the Knudsen School of Law. Why would you encourage them to move into this kind of practice? I, as a Legal aid was my entire career. For 25 years, I was a legal aid lawyer, and I had opportunities I think that you can't have in private practice. I was able to um, take cases that had merit um, and have a huge impact, not just for my client, but on a particular area of the law. I would not have necessarily had that opportunity at private practice. Filing an appeal over a $125 bank garnishment is not something you can do in a for-profit practice, but it's certainly something legal aid can do. And we're looking at having similar um, cases with impact in housing here at uh, East River Legal Services as well. Yeah. All right. We'll have you back and talk more about this in the future. Uh, for now, Lee Robleski with East Re River Legal Services. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having Your me. Your debut. We'll yes. see you next time. All right. <laughs> Welcome back to In the Moment. You're listening to South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and I'm Lori Walsh. Gathered with me in the studio now, we are going to have a conversation about the October 28th South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. They're performing uh, Rimsky Korsakov's Scheherazade, and they will also dive into the work of Lou Harrison. Now, Harrison is known for incorporating non-traditional instruments into his pieces. He most often included the classic Indonesian percussive instrument, the gamelan. And the symphony orchestra will be tackling a few such pieces this weekend. Today we're going to preview some of that and dive into the history and stories behind Harrison's work. And we have just the people here for the conversation. Maestro Delta David Geyer is music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. He's with us here. Welcome back, Maestro. Thank you. Another familiar voice to listeners Classical music historian Joseph Horowitz returns to the show. Welcome back. Hi, Lori. And alongside them 
Emmanuel, you, I'm sorry. Already I botched it. <laughs> Emanuele Arcioli. Arcioli. Please introduce yourself. Yeah. Emanuele Arcioli. Yeah. Thank you. Emanuele Arcioli. He is an internationally renowned pianist who will join the symphony orchestra on stage this weekend. And welcome to you as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Delta David Geyer, we're going to focus on Lou Harrison mm -hmm. in this conversation um, with the great cultural historian Joe Horowitz here. Tell us what the audience experience will be like for this performance of Lou Harrison's Piano Concerto. Well, Joe's been, you, I think you've been here, what, four times before, so people, our audiences, our regular audiences are very familiar with the Joe Horowitz program, which is part lecture demonstration, part concert. Mostly concert, uh, but Joe's mission has been to contextualize the work for people as if you're going into a museum and you get the audio guide or something, somebody to, 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 uh, to guide you through what it is. And this, that's what we'll be doing around Lou Harrison's Piano Concerto. Scheherazade is on the second half of the program, and we begin the program with uh, Ravel's uh, a movement from Mother Goose, uh, the Princess of the Pagodas. So all of this is under the sort of umbrella of, you might call, exoticism in music, uh, music from other cultures that have influenced classical music. So that's certainly true of Ravel, and you'll find out exactly why it's true of Lou Harrison. It's also true of Rimsky-Korsakov and Scheherazade. Excuse me, Scheherazade. It's based on uh, the, the collection of stories we call uh, the Arabian Nights or A Thousand and One Nights. Yeah. Mr. Horowitz, tell us a little bit about Lou Harrison as a man, as a composer. He's very American, but yet we're on this uh, cultural excursion as well. Uh, Harrison, I would say, was a prophet of world music before there was a name for it. He's a product of the West Coast. He grew up exposed to things like Chinese opera, and he also collected junk with John Cage, which they turned into percussion instruments. So this is a self-invented, do-it-yourself kind of American genius. Ultimately, he was deeply engaged in Javanese music, what's called gamelan music, Gamelan refers to a kind of percussion ensemble uh, with instruments that are, for the most part, uh, struck with hammers, and then there are gongs. And this world of music was one <coughs> with which Harrison became, <coughs> excuse me, very familiar uh, as a practitioner. So the influence on the Harrison Piano Concerto of Gamelan is organic. It doesn't sound like gamelan, but parts of it are made like gamelan music. And I, I would just say that, I, personally, I consider this the most formidable concerto by any American composer. It's a big piece. It's 35 minutes long. It traverses many worlds. People will find it uh, startling, surprising. Uh, some of the music is very visceral. Some of the music is very atmospheric. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame that this piece is not better known. And it's a credit to David that he's bringing it to Sioux Falls. Emanuele is one of the few 
I mean, how many pianists are playing this piece right now, do you think, Emmanuel? I have no idea. You have no <laughs> idea. But we can say very few people play it. And uh, that's a topic unto itself, really, why such an important American work is so little known and so little heard. And you say it's not eclectic. It is a cohesive whole. Help me understand what you mean. I read that. Yeah, I would call this an act of fusion. In fact, an act of fusion. Fusion. Okay. Yeah, cultural fusion. We're doing. Emanuele and I are doing an event tonight, seven thirty, at South Dakota State University, called American Fusion. And, uh, you know, we're a polyglot culture. Harrison is. The danger of this kind of music is that it become quote eclectic, or appropriative. But uh, Harrison is not dabbling in other cultures. Harrison is somebody who's deeply conversant with non-Western musics. So the fusion that he achieves is very different than what you might expect. You don't hear kind of whiffs of gamelan music. Rather, as we'll demonstrate, there's a like a 30-minute preamble with film tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that we will do is show how a gamelan is put together, which is layers of sound, and how the very unusual keyboard writing in the first movement of the Harrison Concerto is similarly layered. So listening to this piano part, you might not immediately think of gamelan because it doesn't sound like gamelan, but it's structured like gamelan, and that is an act of fusion. I see. Is the piano tuned differently, or is it tuned as it normally is, Emanuele. In this case, the piano is tuned differently. Uh, the Kirnberger system of tuning that is very fascinating because when you play uh, in the, the key of the, the concerto, uh, the sound is very beautiful and euphonic. And when you go far from the the tonality, the sound sounds much more dissonant. Uh, it's something very fascinating, but of course it's possible to perform the concerto also with a normal, the, 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 the normal temperament. Yeah. Yeah. I did, I did in both ways in the past. All right. And Joseph said not a lot of pianists are playing this you are, what draws you to it? Um, um, I was invited to perform this piece by an American conductor that, that championed a lot the Harrison Concerto, Dennis Russell Davis. And uh, I, I really uh, loved the piece and I started to play because I, I agree uh, what uh, Joe is is telling me is one of the one of the most important piano concertos of the second half of twentieth century, mm -hmm. and it was composed for Keith Jarrett, the jazz pianist. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Wow, Maestro, I get a little nervous around uh, these two <laughs> men <laughs> because too. of. Oh, come oh on. thank goodness! Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Ridiculous. Can't even say the names right at some point. I've like, close my eyes. But it's because of the quality 
the depth, the power of what the music and the context does to, to me. Hmm. And that is something that you are trying to do, is to bring people like me into the concert hall. Right. Um, and to say, this is also for you to experience. Well, people don't want to feel stupid. I mean, how many, <laughs> people, how many people have I met that say, oh, I don't yeah. know anything about classical music? And it doesn't matter. The music's there for you to enjoy. But sh like any art, it's the more you know about it, the more you can right. enjoy it. So this is a, a way. I mean, first thing, we'll have a pre-concert talk at 6.30 yeah. on Saturday. So that's always a good way to get sort of primed. Mm -hmm. But if you're still at dinner and having that second glass of wine, not too much because you'll fall asleep during the concert. <laughs> um, but, but then in this case, we'll have in the midst of the concert, um, coming out of the Ravel and talking about how Ravel was influenced by Gamelon mm -hmm. in the late 1800s, and then attaching that to Lou Harrison. And the word that has not been used about the Lou Harrison concerto yet is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a gorgeous piece. Mm -hmm. It's also fascinating, absolutely. It's rhythmically exciting in places, but it's also got this huge sweeping, uh, you know, it sounds Indonesian, yes, in, in ways, and sounds Indian in other moments, but it's, it's really quite beautiful. Emanuele and I played it together in Italy two years ago, and that's when I said, we have to do this. We yeah. have to bring this to Sioux Falls yeah. because the audience is going to love it. Why am I still bringing that into the concert hall? After all the years that we have been, I mean, mm. you're like the first interview I ever did as a journalist. And I'm yeah. still like wringing my hands that somehow I'm not good enough for the con conversation. And I think for me, I would say like when I first started coming to the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, I would come into the hall, the music would begin, and I would just cry. Mm. Mm -hmm. And slowly I have built a language and around that for mm. what that brings out for me. There. Well, now you know the deep inside. Well, my wife, my, my wife, you know her well, mm -hmm, Angela. Yeah. She, when we met, she was not a classical music lover, and she delved into it more and more deeply. And the way she describes it is, you're living in your house your entire life, and you discover a door to a room you didn't even know existed. You open the door, and all of a sudden, you want to spend all of your time there. Yeah, right. Joseph said, "It's a shame more people don't know this American." composer mm -hmm. help us understand why he is not in the canon or why he should be or why why we should all already kind of know Lou Harrison's name well I mean one thing is that it, he often writes for strange ensembles okay. and so it's it's kind of difficult outside of a conservatory setting where you have all kinds of different people playing all kinds of things um, like for an orchestra to do Lou Harrison there's not a lot of orchestra pieces Joe I'm gonna let you pick that up from there because because I, you know, that that's the reason that I can see. Yeah, I don't think that. <clears throat> I don't think there's a, an adequate reason. Mm. I think it's, it's, it's just a failure on the part of music directors and orchestras. Um, it might be interesting for your audience to know that our story that we're telling tonight, sorry, on Saturday night, begins with the 1889. Exposition in Paris, which is when the Eiffel Tower was built. So one of the most famous uh, components of this World's Fair, other than the Eiffel Tower, was the Javanese village. And an actual 
contingent of Javanese people was transported to Paris, and it included a gamelan orchestra and four dancers. And this took Paris by storm. Imagine that there were no recordings or films of Javanese villages or of the music that the Javanese produced. So it was uh, an epiphany overnight. And the intellectuals and musicians of Paris were transported and transfixed by this new musical world, yeah. uh, in particular Debussy. And that actually is the story that we begin with, which will include photographs of the Javanese village and the dancers. All of that is essential to the context of Harrison of, and of the Harrison Piano Concerto. Can I just jump in and say, why is that not cultural appropriation? And I'll, Because you've also said that these Javanese that came for this purpose to Paris became celebrities. Right. Like they were not you know, there just as a curiosity, right? Yes, well, uh, appropriation. You know, uh, I've learned over the years, mainly from a guy named Bill Alvis, who's a a Harrison scholar and a Gamelon scholar. Appropriation was not an issue vis-a-vis -vis Harrison for the Indonesians. They were actually delighted that this guy who looked like Santa Claus, who came from <laughs> California, was so interested in their music. It was much more of an issue for Americans worrying about the Indonesians. This is a topic we don't need to go into. We, right. We've spent yeah. a few hours talking <laughs> yes, about this. Go indeed. back online <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah. do a Google search, and you'll find some of our conversations about. But I do want to. Uh, are there flower pots on the stage? Is there a gamelan? Tell me about the instrumentation um, of the night. It's actually just it, it's it's modestly unusual. Um, <laughs> you have a piano soloist. You have string orchestra. Uh -huh. You have two harps, which okay. are tuned to the piano which is slightly a kilter, you know, from yeah. the rest of the orchestra to give this exotic effect. Um, and then you have three trombones and three percussionists. That's it. No woodwinds, mm. no other brass, you know. So it's the colors are the imagination of Lou Harrison, which is oh, really, this. really quite something. Yeah. Say yeah. something about this, the mastery of Emanuele, so people, he's, so, hum he's humble, so do it for Yeah, him. well, you're gonna need to jump in here, Emanuele. We've, uh, uh, we met, he's been here, what, at least four times before, playing various concerti with us, and our orchestra loves him, he's ma he's masterful, but hugely committed to American music, this yeah, Italian right, guy. Right, so. tell us why in just a minute. Why American music for you? Because, because I, of course, not all the American music. There is American music that I don't like and I don't play. Fair. But I play a lot of American music because I love those composers and I think that are amongst the best composers of today. Tonight, 7.30 at South Dakota State University. This weekend at the Washington Pavilion. We'll put everything up on our website. You can also go to the uh, Symphony Orchestra's website, find the information you need Emmanuel Archuli, Joseph Horowitz, Delta David Geyer. Thank you so much for visiting us once again. Thank you, Thank Lori. You. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, this morning I had the opportunity to speak with world renowned philosopher Dr. Michael Sandel. 
Dr. Sandel teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. He writes extensively on the topics of justice, ethics, democracy, markets, and meritocracy. Sandel is the keynote speaker for Augustana University's inaugural colloquium, focused on critical inquiry and citizenship. He'll give his presentation, Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good, to the Augie community, alumni, and friends at 7 p.m. tonight. That's Thursday, October 26th, in the Elman Center in Sioux Falls. I talked with Michael ahead of his presentation at Augie. Here's our conversation. We live in, in deeply polarized times. We've lost the ability, it seems, to reason together about things that matter, about what makes for a just society, about what we owe one another as citizens, about what it is to seek the common good. And so that was actually part of the motivation for me to write my book, The Tyranny of Merit, which will be the subject of my talk at Augustana. The Now, it's paradoxical, I suppose, to think of merit as a kind of tyranny, because normally we think of merit as a good thing. Mm -hmm. If I need surgery, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. That's merit. And so how can merit become a kind of tyranny? Well, it has to do with the growing divide in our society between winners and losers. That divide has been deepening poisoning our politics and setting us apart. And this has partly to do, I think, Laurie, with the widening inequalities of recent decades, but not only that. Mm -hmm. I think it has also to do with the changing attitudes towards success that have accompanied the widening inequalities. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit and that they therefore deserve the bounty the market bestows upon them, and by implication that those who struggle must deserve their fate too. This is the, these are the harsh attitudes towards success, I think, that have contributed to our polarization, and they are connected to the meritocratic idea that the winner, that, that insofar as chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. And this gets back to the the principles that we believe we were founded upon. How have you seen this evolve and change over your career? Well, I've noticed among my students over the years, I've taught for four plus decades, and we discuss questions of justice and who deserves what and why, because I, I think... Uh, colleges and universities have as should have as part of their central mission, as I know Augustana does, to invite students to reflect critically on their moral convictions to figure out what what's worth caring about and why. I've noticed among my students over a period of decades a growing tendency to assume that whatever achievements have come their way are the result of their own effort, their own doing. And this can lead us, especially when it's writ large across a society, as I think it is, this can lead us to forget the luck and good fortune that help us on our way. And it can lead us to forget our indebtedness to those who make our achievements possible. Family, teachers, coaches, neighborhoods, communities, countries, 
the times in which we live. So one of, the, one of my reasons for writing The Tyranny of Merit is to prompt reflection about what accounts for our own success and achievements. To what extent are we really self-made and self-making? That's tempting to think that we are. Uh, and to what extent are we indebted, embedded in communities and indebted to those who make our, our achievements possible? Weave that, continue that thought, only add the word entitlement. When do you see us being entitled to successes because of our family, our community, our university, our credentials? Well, the idea of entitlement, the idea that I deserve whatever, uh, whatever success I've come to enjoy, I think that idea has gradually tightened its hold on the way we think about success. We've been thinking about it from the standpoint just now, from the standpoint of students. But if we look at the wider society, we see that the age of globalization, really an age of market-driven, finance-driven globalization, going back to the 1980s, has really been a time when the global economy did deliver great rewards, but those rewards were not widely shared. They flowed mostly to the top 10 and top 20%. And those who were in bottom 60%, really, working people and middle-class folks, uh, did not really see much increase in real terms in wages over a, a four-decade period. So I, uh, when, when this uh, widening inequality is combined with a sense that those who did well over the last decades are entitled, to go back to your question, Laurie, about entitlement, mm -hmm. when they come to think they're entitled to, to the bounty that the market bestowed upon them and that they, they don't really owe uh, the rest of the community and the society, uh, they, they don't have an obligation to, to share their good fortune. That idea of entitlement can, can take us away from notions of the common good and of mutual obligation. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's so important to ask, what really, well, who, did, who does deserve what and why? Are we entitled to everything that flows our our way in a, in a market society, or do the market arrangements themselves uh, put those with certain talents at a certain advantage? One way of thinking about it concretely is to imagine a race where everyone begins at the same starting line in the race, but there are many, but some on that starting line have had access to the to the best coaches, to the, they've been able to get the very best running shoes. They've trained on the finest tracks. They've had uh, the best diets and, and health and nutrition. Well, that race, you could say everybody begins at the same starting point, but is it really true that the winners who have all kinds of advantages are, uh, deserve deserve their winnings, or are those winnings partly thanks to all sorts of favorable life circumstances that 
helped them even before the race began. Did the pandemic have an opportunity for us to have a national reset or at least a conversation and shared experiences about how we think about work and labor and the kind of labor that mattered and was deemed essential. What are the lessons from that time that might help provide some commonality from political opposites? Well, Lori, it certainly seemed at the beginning of the pandemic that that experience might prompt a rethinking of exactly the kind you're describing. And the pandemic did, for a time, seem to offer a moment to ask hard questions about who really makes a valuable contribution to the common good. Those of us who had the, the luxury of working from home during the pandemic couldn't help but recognize how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. I'm thinking not only of those working heroically in the hospitals, but delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, truck drivers, um, um, home health care workers, child care workers. Now, these are not the best paid or the most honored members of our society. And yet during the pandemic, we were calling them essential workers. We were putting out signs, you remember, thanking mm -hmm. them and sometimes applauding uh, these essential workers at the end of the day. This could have been a moment for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of the contributions they make. Sadly, though, Laurie, I think that moment passed, the pandemic receded, and we didn't really have that broader public conversation about how to honor the dignity of work and how to how to allocate not only economic rewards but also social recognition and esteem honor mm. and respect to those who who contribute in very important ways to the common good through the work they do through the families they raise through the communities they serve whether or not they have prestigious academic credentials and degrees. So that's the debate I, I think we still need to have, even though that moment during the pandemic that seemed to prompt such a debate uh, was was not fully, fully realized. We didn't take full advantage of it, Lori. Mm. It seems that is a particularly um, rich place for thought and conversation among progressives and among conservatives, at least in South Dakota, I've seen, or I, I wonder what you might think about, the opportunity for rich reflection on the concept of freedom and self-reliance. Because at the same time in the pandemic, we made choices um, to not have some of the restrictions that other states did. And you can see the narrative churning and evolving about, again, the power of self-reliance and freedom from thinking about the common good in some ways. There's a lot 
of good things in that, and then there's some risk there about how we treat our neighbors. What what does that bring up for you? This 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 political narrative about freedom. Yes, I think you put your finger on it, Laurie, because of course freedom is perhaps the defining aspiration of of American public life, of civic life, of American democracy. Everybody uh, everybody celebrates freedom as, as central to the American project. And yet we do disagree, uh, sometimes quite fiercely, about what freedom really means. And there are at least two competing conceptions of freedom at play in our political debates. One is the idea of freedom as individual self-reliance, as you just mentioned. And this leads to the idea that nobody should tell me, even during a pandemic, whether I should wear a mask when I'm flying in an airplane or riding in a bus or going into a public facility. That's an infringement on my freedom of choice. But there's another conception of freedom that recognizes the sense in which really to be free is to share as fellow citizens in the project of self-government. According to this, I would call it a civic conception of freedom. We're free insofar as we have a meaningful say, along with our fellow citizens, in shaping the forces and the decisions that govern our collective lives. This civic conception of freedom requires a a sense of community, a, a sense of indebtedness for our achievements to go back to the earlier part of our conversation. It requires a sense of belonging and a sense of mutual responsibility among citizens. So I think you're right, Laurie, to identify the tension between in, in our society, the tension, the disagreement, the, the contest between two rival conceptions of what it is to, to build a free society together. And we see these, these competing conceptions of freedom playing themselves out uh, throughout our political debate. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a tension, it's not a dilemma that we can ever resolve once and for all, I don't think. Yeah. But part of, part of our problem now is that we're not even debating these big questions as we should be in our public life. Instead, we're what passes for public discourse consists of shouting matches where we, we don't really listen to one another. And what I'm, uh, I'm hoping that we'll do uh, with tonight at uh, Augustana is engage the community the, and the students in just the kind of public discussion and debate about fundamental values and uh, about the common good and about freedom that, uh, well, that I think can set an example for, for the wider society. Yeah. And I have watched your lectures um, on YouTube and you do this so masterfully and patiently with what looks like hundreds, if not even a thousand students in the room. Tell us before we let you go um, how we can do this in a crowded space with lots of people with different backgrounds, have a meaningful conversation. I mean, you've done this outside the outside the higher education yep. classroom. You've done this internationally. Yes. It's, I mean, is it just you? You're that good at it? Or can it be something that we can all aspire to? I think I certainly hope we can all aspire to it. But 
to do that, Laurie, I think we have to overcome some bad habits, hmm. bad habits that are reinforced by social media, which really depends on capturing and holding our attention by by inflaming us with uh, anger against uh, those with whom we disagree. Social media encloses us in bubbles of opinion where we don't really gain much experience in reasoning together or even listening to one another. I would say if, if there's a secret to the kinds of dialogues I try to promote in my classroom and, and more generally in, in public settings, it's to try to remind us of something we know but easily forget which is the importance of the art of listening. By listening, I don't just mean hearing the words of someone with whom we disagree. I mean listening for the moral convictions and assumptions and beliefs that underlie their, their differing opinion from mine. Because only li listening, here's, I guess, uh, another way of putting it. Listening is really a civic virtue. It's a civic virtue. It's an art and it's central to the art of democratic public discourse. Our media environment, social, certainly social media, does not cultivate the art of listening. So I think we need to go back to the basics of civic education and, and reacquaint people with the, the art of listening respectfully, intent, intently, especially across our differences. Because rediscovering the art of, of listening is essential, I think, Laurie, to rediscovering the lost art of democratic public discourse. That's Michael Sandel. The book we talked about mostly there is called The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. You can see Sandel tonight at Augustana at 7 p.m. That is part of their new colloquium focused on critical inquiry and citizenship. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, last weekend, South Dakotans from across the state donned their blaze orange and headed out into the fields. It was Pheasant Opener, an event that pulls many hunters into the great outdoors with their friends, family, and dogs. Today, we're going to talk to a hunter who missed this year's opener, but he was having such a good time, he barely gave it a thought. Barely, that is. Kevin Wooster is with us on the phone now to talk about his latest post in the On the Other Hand blog, which you can find on our website. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Laurie. And our producer was one of those out in the fields, as I understand. Oh, I didn't know this. Now we have something to yeah, talk about after the show. Out yes, in the <laughs> yes. He was but, apparently helping kick, the, kick the, the weeds and get the birds up for a family hunt back in my home turf around Chamberlain, Pacuana. Well, nice. All right, you weren't there because your family said, "Let's go somewhere." Else. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't ask. They didn't clear it with you on your schedule. They they looked and I saw it and said, "Hey, it's a family thing. My kids, my grandkids, out in the hills, cabin. What's not to love about that? Everything was perfect except the one little thing." <laughs> so, it was the pheasant opener. It was the pheasant opener weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was was there a moment where you thought, am I going to go? Or was it like a no-brainer that you were going to go to the family oh, thing? No. no. Okay. <laughs> when it, if it works for them, they're, yeah. they're, the, they're the fully employed, hardworking, you know, both my son and, and my daughter and their spouses, they're 
you know, they've got busy jobs and they've got two kids each and yeah. lots going on. And Mary and I are retired, although Mary does a lot of volunteer work that keeps her pretty busy, but uh, we're flexible. And, you know, there there will be other pheasant openers. There will be more pheasant hunting this year for me. Right, um, right. And, the, the, yeah, a couple of times when I when I thought about how nice the weather was and looked at how nice <laughs> it was nice out day. on the prairie. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful day to be hunting pheasants. Uh-huh. I got updates from my brother Jim, you know, on what <laughs> our family would be up to out there that day. And yeah, yeah I thought about it a little bit. May we all, people were out there. May we all have enough family, friends, richness of life to have opportunities that we have to miss every weekend because we are having another beautiful opportunity with family and friends, right? We should all be so lucky. <laughs> Um, to have these choices that are steeped in tradition and affection and love. It's pretty hard to complain about that, isn't it? And, yeah. uh, and you know, I'm just happy that so, knowing that my family, that my mom's side of the family, uh, the, the Irish side, would be out there and, and uh, doing what, uh, you know, because I've talked about it on the show before, mm-hmm. we're to the age now, my brother Jim and Terry and I, where we shoe out, you know, we go to have the sloppy joes and the chicken and, tell lies and then watch the younger people trash around and you know then we go visit people and that's kind of become our opening day which is you know wonderful too yeah right okay tell us a little bit about the the blog more hunt is it still is it on for 2023 we are we are uh, believing that unless the weather turns worse than we expect it to be it's on for sunday and about 15 or 20 of us have Various uh, political registrations and beliefs will be there, and I don't. It, it'll be in keeping with all the other Blogmore hunts since 2007. Uh, nobody's going to be in any arguments. It seems to be magical that way. Because they're armed. Yeah, and, and I probably <laughs> the stakes are high, I, Kevin. <laughs> we've, we've mentioned that before when yeah. I told my boss at the Rhapsody Journal that I was going to bring all these people that were screaming at each other, screaming "quote unquote." Yeah. on our blog, Mount Blogmore, together with loaded firearms. He thought that was a bad idea. And uh, <laughs> I told him it'll be fine because we all love the same thing when it comes to that day yeah. of gathering. And uh, we'll put on our blaze orange and we'll go out and have a great time. And afterwards, we'll have some of Mary Jo Nemec's chili and appreciate uh, the, the gift that she and her husband, Nick, give us out there at their yeah. farm. And We've been doing that since 2007, and I can't remember an argument. Maybe yeah. a few mild disagreements, but no argument. And that is just say something about the power of people being able. You know, we think of hunting as a as a certain kind of tradition, largely to do with you know the land and with family and things that are passed down with sport. But this is also about civic behavior. And that is a tradition yeah. that is also definitely worth preserving or reinvigorating. You you talked about it in the previous segment, you know, yeah. and that kind of ability to set some things aside and have a conversation because we do talk about things that we have to agree with, that we disagree on out there. But there is this backdrop of commonality and shared experiences and love for the outdoors, for the state, for this particular form of outdoor recreation, and shared experiences that we all had growing up that that takes the edge off things. And, you know, somehow we have to do that in our society without gathering for a pheasant. Somehow we have to yeah. take the edge off things. 
Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I thought about you a lot during that interview when I was taping it this morning. Um, first of all, I thought that you would like it. And then I also thought how yeah. much I have prepared for that conversation through my conversations with you. So thank you for that. Oh, very nice. Very nice. You can find all of Kevin Wooster's blog posts for SDPB on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. Kevin, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Lauren. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Um, on the next In the Moment, we're going to have a special hour tomorrow. Kate DiCamillo is one of America's most successful and remarkable writers for children. We're going to bring you our intimate conversation that was recorded live at the South Dakota Festival of Books. And we'll explore how reading to someone can save their life and how stories might be our best hope as human beings. For Alan Kester and Ari Youngman, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening. <laughs>